the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. June 28th, 2021. If there's confusion in the air about critical race theory, what I gather will be the phrase of the year. Confusion about what it means. Confusion over whether it's being taught or not. Confusion about whether it should be taught. If there's confusion about all this, I don't blame the confused. Not even those on the purported right quite get it all the time. Some get it exactly backwards, including among self-described conservatives. Parenthetical, this makes me want to just take a moment to say, as we are getting into primary season here, you're going to see the word conservative thrown around a lot, especially by Republican candidates. My advice do not take their word for it. Start with the rule that if someone has to tell you who they are, you obviously start by not knowing who they are. If someone has to tell you something you wonder about, it's not obvious that they are that. By their fruit shall you know them. What is it they have done? Where were they in the fight when there was a fight and things mattered? Have they done unpopular things with the media? to support a conservative cause, idea, or agenda? Or have they kept their head down until opportunity strikes for their own agendas and careers long after all the fights and work are over? I suppose that was the first thing that offended me thinking about this when Mitt Romney, for example, said he was extremely conservative. First, that's something no conservative ever said about themselves. Second, why would one need to put a superlative on their own description when they've been in public life on the national straight stage for a decade? Third, why would someone need to reassure a conservative voter or votoring if they were conservative? Had, had, had they spoken and acted as such? Had not given cause for doubt? Which brings me to my fourth point from the movie Ronin. If there's doubt there's no doubt. This is the corollary to the John O'Sullivan rule. Any organization or enterprise that is not expressly right-wing will become left-wing over time. This is all true of people who say they're conservatives but show no evidence of it as well. Why is it? This is not a departure from what I was saying earlier because it goes for Republican officials as well as institutions. All the more reason, of course, to be wary, the liberal wolf in Republican garb. Why the preordained drift portside all the time, everywhere, and never starboard? As one analyst pointed out, one of the reasons for this is leftist intolerance versus right-wing intolerance. Right-wingers are willing to hire openly left-wing employees in the interest of fairness Left-wingers, utterly intolerant, will not allow a non-liberal near them and will harass them at every opportunity. The result over time is that conservative enterprises are infiltrated by leftists, but leftist enterprises remain the same or get worse. Also, 
leftism is in and of itself a form of decay. It's what happens not just to television shows, but to nations, churches, and universities as they as the energy given off by the big bang of their inception slowly ebbs away. Rather than expend vitality and originally in creation, they become obsessed with introspection, popularity, and lethargy. Leftism is entropy of the spirit and intellect. Anyhow, as I was saying, beware the self-described conservative who has not given you evidence of conservatism in their past. What have they said or done that is conservative? I gave you my test above. By their fruit shall you know them. What is it they've done? Where were they in the fight when there was a fight? Have they done unpopular things to support a conservative cause, idea, or agenda that has upset the media? Or have they kept their head down until opportunity strikes for their own agendas and careers? That's my test. This brings us to confusion caused by a self-described conservative when it comes to critical race theory. I speak of Ross Dudat's op-ed this morning in the New York Times. He writes in the New York Times today, You have progressives who, until recently, breathing the sweet air of revolution, suddenly denied they are interested in anything radical at all. In particular, after conservatives began using critical race theory as an umbrella term for educational strategies they oppose, progressives began insisting that CRT is either academic and irrelevant, just high-level grad school stuff, or anodyne and uncontroversial, just a way of saying we should teach kids about slavery and racism. That's close and fair enough, but then he writes this, quote, Progressives want to change the way schools teach American history. They want to finally exercise the ghost of lost cause historiography, the romantization of the Confederacy, that still haunts textbooks in some corners of the South. Then they want to broaden the narrative of race beyond the Civil War and the Civil Rights era, recovering stories of African-American resistance under slavery and the history of racial subjugation from the 1870s onward, giving events like the Tulsa Massacre a special prominence. That's close and fair enough in its part about changing education in its part about wanting to finally exercise the ghost of lost cause historiography and the romanticization of the confederacy it's utter fantasy while no doubt some precincts in the south as everywhere have a few kooky textbooks available for adoption i have no proof the pro-confederacy books have ever been anywhere adopted or even taken or read that seriously. For the real truth is progressives want to change schools and pedagogy all over the country. Most of the critical race theory controversy has not been in places like South Carolina, but rather progressive and tony suburban areas in Virginia, California, and New York, with public and high-priced private schools alike. But not even that is the major fantasy in Ross's statement, the major point, which he should be smart enough to understand, is that critical race theory agenda and understanding of history is the southern history of the United States as promoted and argued by the lost cause, the Confederacy. I don't know how many times I can point this revolutionary irony out, but the side in the Civil War 
that thought our founding a lie and that all men were not intended to be treated equal by our founders was the losing side, the South, the Confederacy, as it is BLM and Antifa and the left today. They share the same view of our founding, and that should be the most instructive thing around. The side opposed to that view and that thought our founding dedicated to true, was dedicated to true liberty and equality for all men was the Union. The side we are on still as conservatives today. Today's left sounds like Alexander Stevens and Jefferson Davis when speaking about the founding. Today's right, as always, at least since 1856, speaks highly of the founding and sounds like Ulysses S. Grant, Martin Luther King, and Frederick Douglass, at least in argument and position. If there's a lost cause, historiography and romanticism in this country, philosophically, ideologically, historically, in other words, in every way that matters— if there's a lost cause historiography there, it's on the progressive left, CRT side. Ross ought to have known better about that. Thus, confusion. Added confusion. When all we seek is clarity, which is so much simpler. What we've done with CRT and the study and argument about race in America is take the obvious and rational and obscure it by means sophistic and demagogic. However, Ross continued on to write, quote, in its contest with the new progressivism, the right is abandoning Lee and rallying to Lincoln for its own nationalist political purpose, but in a way that accepts a different center for historical debate than existed even when I was in high school. Close quote. Ross is probably about 45. Buy me a vowel because OMG in the parlance of our times, or is that already a decade old? I'm not sure. But since when did the right embrace Lee and Davis? If they did, they did it wrongly. As the historian Al Felsenberg put it, it's a mystery quite how the party of Abraham Lincoln, born in the moral outrage of the great northern abolitionists, could become in the minds of some the party of Davis or Lee. To some, Davis's and Lee's legacy may seem one of support for states' rights. To others, however, he rem they remain Southern slaveholders, Democrats, presidents, and vice presidents of a Confederacy born in rebellion and cessation in defense of the moral good of slavery. Or perhaps it's not such a mystery. From their 1854 beginning, the Republicans were the party that fought slavery, imposed Reconstruction, and opposed segregation, while the Democrats were the party of Jim Crow, race-baiting, and Dixiecrats. But for many years, progressive historians have been telling a story of America's steady march to liberalism, in which all good comes from Democrat and all evil from Republican. And not only have Democrats learned this false lesson and claimed an undeserved reputation on race, but even Republicans, too many of them, have absorbed their enemy's lesson until at last they find themselves claiming people like Def Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and Alexander Stevens as one of their own. In order to, to, to construct their progressive story, left Leaning historians were forced to pass over innumerable democratic sins in their textbooks. Andrew Jackson's treatment of Native Americans, Southern populists' racial demonizing, Woodrow Wilson's segregationism, William Jennings' Bryan's support for the KKK, 
and Franklin Roosevelt's indifference to anti-lynching legislation. Might add, never mind anti-Semitism. Simultaneously, they were compelled to ignore the efforts the conservative made to improve race relations. New York boss Roscoe Conkling escorted Mississippi's Hiram Revels, the first black senator, down the aisle to his swearing in when no one else would. But his courage has found few admirers among reform-minded historians. In the 1880s, as a young congressman, Henry Cabot Lodge introduced a voting rights bill, but he's known to history primarily as Woodrow Wilson's antagonist in international relations. Uncle Joe Cannon, the tyrannical Speaker of the House in the early 1900s, according to history, backed every civil rights measure introduced during his long tenure. But he's more famous in the textbooks for being a tyrannical Speaker and for supporting tariffs and trusts. Presidents Grant, Harrison, Harding, Coolidge, they tried to all outlaw, all of them tried to outlaw lynching. They all tried to protect voting rights and increase tolerance, but all received failing or below average grades from the famous historians who disapprove of their economic policies. Textbooks record that Eisenhower sent troops to Little Rock to enforce the Supreme Court's 1954 anti-segregation decision in Brown versus Board of Education, but always with the caveat that he did so reluctantly and late. They make less mention of his peaceful desegregation of the nation's capital or his success in passing the first civil rights bill in a century, despite Democratic efforts to weaken it. So complete has been the victory of this view of American history that even Republicans turn away from their past in too many cases. No serious candidates invoke the names of Grant Harding, Cannon, or Coolidge anymore, though they should. Yet African-American activist Frederick Douglass stood up for Grant in his day. His political descendants did the same for other Republicans. If progressive historians had been less willing to relegate race to secondary importance in explaining the past, or if Republicans had proved less apt pupils, the GOP could cite with telling effect a long train of heroes in our fight against racism. It is for this reason, because it is so true and infects us too much evidently today, when a smart so-called conservative like Ross Duthat can get this so very, very wrong. And it is for this reason. Some years ago, Harry Jaffa, a Lincoln scholar and Goldwater's most famous speechwriter, could say this. It would certainly seem that the salvation of the West must come, if it is to come, from the United States. The salvation of the United States, if it is to come, must come from the Republican Party. And the salvation of the Republican Party, if it is to come, must come from the conservative movement within it. And the salvation of the conservative movement, if it is to come, must come from the renewal and reaffirmation of the principles of the American founding, embodied above all in the Declaration of Independence. Such a reaffirmation has happened in the events that led to the election of Abraham Lincoln. I only close with this, Mr. Do That. Note the side note. Goldwater's most famous speechwriter, a Lincoln scholar, not a Davis or Lee or Stevens scholar. So just when was it again that we had to finally abandon Robert E. Lee and Davis? The real question is, why does the left now embrace them even if unwittingly? The answer is ineluctable. They hate this place. It reminds me of the Jesse Kelly quote, and I love it. Americans will never be more than 25 feet away 
from the endless supplies of clean drinking water and still complain about their own country. Meanwhile, some Olympic athlete from some third world dump will wave his flag proudly. Maybe we could take a lesson from them. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I hope you all had a really good weekend. <clears throat> a little bit of news here, which will be fun for the next month or so. Uh, Bill and Anthony and I have been joined. Oh, don't. Yeah, Rusty's not here today. I forgot. Out of sight, out of mind. Have been joined by a, um, a summer mentee whose name is John. And he will be henceforth for the next month known as John the Mentee. He visits us from Washington, D.C., where he is a student there, and he is learning the ins and outs of radio with us for the next 30 days. And is, uh, you'll hear from him on air a little bit, too. He's just uh, getting his sea legs this week. So we all welcome John uh, to the show for the next month. Did I get that right? We'll do your biography tomorrow, maybe. Uh, one of the interesting things I just saw on the news, you know, I'm I've, I've tried to connect issues of public policy to the problems they address. And note that when it comes to the progressive efforts, there seems to be a disconnect that uh, can't ever really be put back together. Yet the electric current is just broken, uh, it seems like, with the left. So quite, for example, one thinks of the headline in the New York Times, uh, prisons fuller crime down. You know, you wonder about why they think that that's some kind of mystery. And when you see the record that took place over the weekend in New York City with some 20 shootings just in the weekend alone, and Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, today saying we're going to flood the zone of New York City with policemen, you wonder if any of this is all really quite necessary or could have been predictable. For <clears throat> it was Bill de Blasio who did take a billion dollars away from the police department in New York City last year. Now, I know that Jen Psaki's idea of defunding the police is that it came from Republicans. But that only um, that really only works in the field that Alice in Wonderland plays in and picks posies at. If you look at Bill de Blasio defunding the police by a billion dollars and marching with Black Lives Matter and painting the name Black Lives Matter on the streets of New York, even when defaced, bringing out city officials to stand by a repainting of them, you have to see, excuse me, you have to ask why maybe someone in the press didn't ask him about the Black Lives Matter website, blacklivesmatter.com, which has a huge headline, what defunding the police really means. I'll just give you the first sentence. We know that police don't keep us safe. We will never be truly safe as long as we continue to pump money into our corrupt criminal justice system. Okay, that's Bill de Blasio last year. This weekend, flood the zone with police. If they had just listened to us, all of this would have been unnecessary and 20 people would be alive. I'm Seth. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 minutes past the hour brings us our culture and economy update with the great John Dombrowski. He is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. He is also the host of his own radio show on this network at 7 a.m. on Saturday mornings, The Word on Wealth. Happy Monday, John. Hello, Seth. How are you? I have to tell you, I don't know um, why, but... Every Monday, you know what the first thing is on my mind is I get to talk to you. What? Because a lot of people have Monday doldrums, yes. and you are the opposite of a doldrum. Oh you gosh. are a walking whatever the opposite of a doldrum is. Uh, well, I am an optimist. I will say that. A walk it. We'll call it a, a walk it. All right. <laughs> I'll put you in my pocket. Uh, all right. Love, love it. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. A day like today where the Dow Jones goes down a little mm-hmm. bit, S&P and NASDAQ seem okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you take from something like that? Nothing, <laughs> maybe, maybe nothing. <laughs> you know, long term, of yeah. course. I always talk about long term. Uh, but we, we're starting, it's interesting, we were talking about a rotation, Seth, a few months back out of some of the technology stocks into some of the other sectors of the market, broadening of the markets. And what we're actually starting to see now, again, is a little bit of a, of a reversal of that. And the reason being is is because we're seeing interest rates starting to settle down a bit. We're starting to uh, see the uh, opportunity still of some of these tech companies potentially being able to um, continue their growth patterns that we've seen here, breaking their uh, you know records of, of income and uh, production. We're also seeing companies such as Facebook. Now, here's another company entering into the trillion-dollar market cap, which is a very small group of companies, Seth. We've got Apple, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft, and now we've got um, Facebook joining this trillion-dollar market cap group of companies. So that was a pretty big uh, deal today, uh, as well as uh, we're seeing technology uh, stocks beginning to, again, start to take off again. Good, John. Thank you for that analysis. That's good. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit. Excuse me. Americans are fascinated by the wealthy. Yes. And even more so by the extremely wealthy. Shows like Dallas and, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Lifestyles, which yes. is famous, things like that. Mm-hmm. Warren Buffett has always captured a lot of imagination. The Oracle of Omaha, right? At one time, he was the richest man in the world. Yeah, that's uh, right. Of course, that has changed over time, yeah. but still a very wealthy man. Uh, his goal in life right now, of course, number one, is taking care of his uh, company and yep. his uh his shareholders of, of his uh, company. but we one, do... one wonders if his kids are as happy about his goals right Well, now. you know, it's interesting because <laughs> he's got about another $100 billion of assets that he, in his mind, his goal now is, is to give money away Oops. to charities, not to his children, as you mentioned. And his, his, one of his mottos is leave the children enough so that they can do anything they want, but not enough that they can do nothing. That's a very interesting I want to know what that number is. Uh, well, he did. I guess two billion each. Or two billion. Each, that's <laughs> that's <right. laughs> okay. Just, just go right. a little further down, and you'll see. <laughs> I guess it's about the number. The number you need. Two okay, billion. There is I, a number. <laughs> I think I could live on that. There is a number that uh, does not make you um, idle. Yeah, and that's well, two billion. I guess okay. everybody's a little different. If you had two billion dollars, it might might kind of uh, you know lower the stimulation of your activity a yep. little bit. But anyway, uh, it's a great uh, you know thought that he has. It's a great uh, motto, and he's lived by it his whole life. And he certainly has done some amazing things throughout his career. And he has certainly given to many, many, many charities. Of course, one 
was the Bill Gates Foundation, of which he recently stepped down mm-hmm. as one of the board members. Um, so uh, he's certainly starting to put his estate in order, and I would encourage everybody out there, uh, if you are thinking about it, of course, we know you're not a billionaire. That's okay, but what you have is important to you, and you probably need to be thinking about how that money should be managed throughout your lifetime, how you can invest it, and then ultimately how you're going to retire and then whatever's left over, how is that going to transition to either your next generation, to charities, or to whoever it is that you'd like to give it to. Um, But you need to have things in writing and have a plan in place, and that's something we can help you with here at our firm, Grand Canyon Planning. Thank you very much. Hey, on a side note, Seth. Yeah. Uh, 1953, June 28th, for those car lovers out there, that's when the first Corvette rolled off the production line. No kidding. Line. 1953, no, I had no June idea. 28th. Yeah. No kidding. Only 300 were made. You'd think it might be the most expensive vehicle, a Corvette, I should say, but it's not. But it could be worth as much as, you know, 750000 to a million dollars, depending on the condition of wow. it right now. Have you ever had one, owned one? No, I've never owned a Corvette. I've always liked them, but never owned one. I've known a few people that it, there's a, you know, people who own them and get, there's a club of Corvettes. Oh my gosh. Sure. You know, there's a whole thing about Corvettes that doesn't exist with, say, I don't know, Pontiacs. Well, the 1967 L88 Coupe is the one that sold for $3.85 million in Scottsdale back in 2014. You could retire on that. You could do it. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finman Tippick and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you so much, Seth. All right, brother. We'll Bye-bye. talk to you soon. And I'm Bye-bye. Seth Liebson at 602-508-0960. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Portions of the show are brought to you by my friends at Cool Touch Air Conditioning. Love those guys. They do all my air conditioning and all my friends and family that have asked me for references and recommendations. And they love the folks at Cool Touch Air Conditioning. Fantastic customer service. You just kind of got to try it to see what I mean when I say that. Right now, they're offering a special unit that operates like a light switch with a dimmer on it because most air conditioning units are just on and off. They have a new unit where it's got a dimmer system on it so it doesn't drain your power with those surges to go on and off to keep you at the temperature you want. So you get the most comfortable living environment and the biggest savings on your utility bills. Cool Touch will eliminate the pain and surprise, and right now they are offering a $2,000 rebate on this system, but for all your air conditioning needs, new repair inspection, check out my friends at Cool Touch at 623-734-1932 or visit them online at cooltouchac.com. That's cooltouchac.com. Big Rob, how are you, man? I'm fine, Seth. I would be remiss in not mentioning, first of all, to uh, welcome your new young John to the uh, probably the greatest radio uh, station and talk show that he could possibly come to, especially from D.C. Oh, that's so nice so, of you. Thank you. Yeah. John well, the Mentee, yes. John the Mentee, yeah, yes. which has a strange, I don't know, sound to it. But, I know. It uh, sounds like, <laughs> a, like a candy or something. Or a, yeah, yeah, or, you know, maybe the mentored one, or I don't know. We'll think on that. Yeah, John the Mentee. Yeah. Also, you know, this is kind of funny in a way. I uh, Over the weekend, I was listening, uh, or I was looking at something on YouTube, and I came across the cow seals. Do you remember them? Who? The cow seals. 
No. This is, the oh, cow okay. field well, or the field. outfield? What are you saying? <laughs> no, the cow field were a family band no. in 67, 68, 69, 70, and um, they were actually the model for the Partridge family. Give me a song. They played, Give me a song. Um, hair from the musical Hair. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And there was also, there was another one, I think it was called The Rain, The Park, and Other Things, but uh, the theme had to do with uh, They Love the Flower Girl. Um, it, it was very, they were very sweet. They even had some specials on TV. And interestingly enough, their harmonies were so good that they were being compared to the Beach Boys. Now, in an ultimate twist of irony, the drummer for the Beach Boys after Dennis Wilson was John Cowsill, member of the Cowsill family. And an even more uh, twist, a great twist, was they came out of Newport, Rhode Island. Their father was a career naval officer from World War II. Apparently, he wasn't very nice, but um, it was just a cute family. And there's still three of them left. Uh, several have passed away, including the mom, who used to sing with them. Um, and they were recently on Huckabee, of all things. But their songs are really, you know, there was a time I remember calling in, and you were listening to something, I don't know if it was Eddie Rabbit or something. I said, why are you putting this on? And he said, and you said, because they make me happy. And I thought about that, and I realized, you know, back then, in, you know, 68, 69, um, the Cowsills were, they played happy music. And it was a, obviously a complicated time, because at the same time you had Vietnam and all these other social upheavals and stuff going on. And they were sort of like the precursor to... Well, they were probably along the same time when the Diosmans were around. Yeah, or Sonny and Cher in the 60s, you know, they they said they were always out of step because, you know, they were about the age of the hippies, but they just weren't part of that movement. They weren't in, yeah. They weren't doing the drug and protest thing. That's right. And the Cowsills were kind of in the same, you know, a wholesome family band that actually sang and, and played instruments very, very well. Um so I don't know. I just kind of thought about all the different. Well, I, I I have no doubt. I said it because it makes me happy. Uh, whatever the yeah. song was, because that <laughs> is the rule of bumper music: music that makes yeah. you happy. Well, you know, you you might want to check out the cow. I might field. want to. Just just for uh, intellectual curiosity purposes, I guess. I understand. Um, but the real reason I was calling had to do with your monologue, which was great as always. And I was just thinking to myself about. Well, a couple of things. You know, how did all this talk about the race thing get to be such a big thing? And then I started thinking about the consequences to the country, to our institutions, and to people in general, when all that we get bombarded and focused on and talk about is race. I mean, this is not exactly a e pluribus unum philosophy, if you know what I mean. Um, and it, it seems like it's... Uh, design is, is to force people to think about other people solely and only uh, according to race and not as individuals. And this sort of uh, gets, gets me to thinking about, well, and again, along those lines, whites are being made to feel guilty over their whiteness and all this ridiculous stuff. And all this stuff is very insidious, very dangerous. And this it's also divisive. And I think a lot of this divisiveness is, is driven by I don't know if it's self-hate or hate of the other, but this goes back again. Remember when Joe Biden said, you know, we were if they were going to unify the country? This isn't exactly a unifying theme, is it? It's the most divisive theme you can find to I think so. continually open wounds that we thought were sewn shut. Exactly. For the purposes 
of uh, political expediency and censorship is yeah. uh, Rob one of the um, one of the most one 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 of the most cheap ways of playing politics that there can be, and it's fool's gold that ends up with a lot of burnt fingers. I'm going to have Alan Dershowitz on the show later today. He's going to talk about the censorship angle and all this, but do think about the kinds of things that the left has brought us. Uh, in force over the last uh, several years and really at hyperspeed over the last year when it comes yeah. to right racialism and censorship two well, yeah. fundamentally un-american classically un-american things well yeah and then there's perversions like george floyd is a hero uh the 1619 project which is a well say, and then ibrahim kindy's book about how to be an anti-racist which is about as racist as you can be, not to mention BLM and critical race theory, all the usual stuff. But it, And then the institutionalization of all of that stuff, uh, especially in my case, uh, the military, which I focus on. You know, on I, I, was re- I was reading an essay, um, I think it was in The Atlantic, and I think it was, yeah, it was by Ibram Kendi talking about the justifications for critical race theory about a week ago or so. <clears throat> and uh-huh. he was talking about <clears throat> how it became uh, a popularized expression when Americans saw the need to address the racism that was exposed by the killing of George Floyd. He may have used the word murder. And right. I, I just got to tell you, I'll, I'll put you on hold and we'll come back to this. It's an important point, I think, because we, we tend to forget things um, and just accept things. And I want us to stop every time that sentence is written or published, or a version of it, and ask, oh, okay, uh, please show me what evidence you had that Derek Chauvin's jury-found killing of George Floyd had anything to do with race. I just want that question asked. Is it too much to ask? There is no satisfactory answer. It was never even brought up by the prosecution. Don't let him get away with it. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Did we discuss, Bill, the Frank Sinatra thing, or was it not to be discussed? The whole that's life and you not knowing that that was Frank Sinatra. We will discuss it, if only because it will shame you. Rob, thanks for holding. (laughs) No, go. I, I think you and Bill should discuss. No, we'll get to it later. We'll get to it later. Okay. Yeah. By the way, I did send you uh, a couple of the Cowsills videos. One was hair, and one was the rain, the park, and other things. So mm-hmm. you know, during the break, you can listen to it, and I don't know if it'll bring back. Well, it may not bring back memories, but they're just you know. Plato, Plato said, uh, "All knowledge is unlocking the, unlocking that which we used to know." So somewhere deeply buried in my soul could be the music of the Cowsills, Rob. Yeah, you just you just never know. You don't and again, know. if you were you a big know. yeah, if you were a big Partridge fan, uh, Partridge family fan, that's okay. uh, they were the inspiration. This is a country of three hundred and thirty million people, and we are the cow sills were talked about today by two of them. Nowhere else in the country yeah. did they get so much airplay today. You have done your work. Well, no. Sir. Well, thank you. Um, where were we? We were talking about. I was just saying that when you think about what the left has brought us. Uh, yeah. uh, pronouncedly over the last year, but really working on it for several years, is uh, two things, racialization, re-racialization, racialization, 
and censorship. Um, two things that, if they are not fundamentally un-American, are nothing. There's nothing uh, other than there's there's no other way to describe those two things. Uh, so what they will do is they will say on the racial question, these are things that you conservatives have not wanted to talk about, and <clears throat> on the um, on the uh, on the censorship issue, uh, they simply say uh, that uh, they 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 are being responsible by by not allowing for the the malicious uh, distribution or promulgation or dissemination of untruths. What's interesting to me is when Donald Trump talked about changing the um, changing the law when it came to uh, libel of public uh, public uh, public actors of uh, public citizens. Uh, the media went nuts. The media went nuts. Now, seemingly, they're in the business of telling us what false and true ideas are. And I do um, fully now understand what Dennis Prager meant when he said he studied Russian to learn how to read Pravda. He never realized it would train him how to read the Washington Post. Yeah, no kidding. Well, and again, I think the reason conservatives hadn't been talking much about racism or race was because we never had a problem with that's a, that's, that's, that's right that's right it was yeah. a problem they tried to foist on us that we that's wanted right. nothing to do with it's kind of like right. i feel like singing them a protest song like we don't want your war we don't want your race war we 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 have we have, we, have, we are tired of the blood and we are tired of the divisions and we are tired of thinking some people can act like gods and some people can treat other people like animals. We are tired of all that. And to, the idea, the idea that this would be with us in 2021, especially after the Obama presidency twice, especially after all the people that have held the senior positions they have held in this country – not to mention the accumulation of millionaires and billionaires in the minority population and other African groups out outdoing even whites. Please give me a break. <laughs>